Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Britain's Chancellor declared a new, less constrained economic era in his budget this week. The era of austerity is finally coming to an end. Can Theresa May's government fulfil that promise? And Harley-Davidson struggles to keep its motor running. I'm Helen Joyce at The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks. First, in a break with tradition, Britain's budget was scheduled for Monday this week rather than the traditional Wednesday. The Chancellor, Philip Hammond, said this avoided Halloween headlines such as Hamo House of Horrors. Callum Williams, our Britain economics correspondent, was watching. Yes, and the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, did actually remind us of the last time it was delivered on a Monday. It was 1962. I was six years old. Tensions between Russia and the United States were rising. And a former foreign secretary turned chancellor delivered a budget amid cabinet revolt. Mr Deputy Speaker, I am acutely aware of the phenomenon of false memory, but I could swear I remember my parents turning to me and saying, Philip, one day that could be you. Before setting the budget each year, Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is finance minister to everybody else, is given a revised set of fiscal forecasts by the Office for Budget Responsibility, or the OBR, which is the official government fiscal watchdog. Now, in recent years, the Chancellor has sort of looked through his fingers each time he, and it has been a he, turned the pages of those forecasts, because time and again in the post-crisis period in particular, Britain's tax revenues have, have disappointed relative to forecasts. And that's made it tricky for the government to reduce the country's budget deficit. And that's really been the defining domestic policy of Conservative governments since the financial crisis. However, yesterday, it was somewhat of a different story. I can report to the British people that their hard work is paying off and the era of austerity is finally coming to an end. Philip Hammond claims that the government is going to be ending austerity. He slightly sort of fudged the language, but the the intent was pretty clear. Now, how can he justify saying that? Well, let's go back to basics. The OBR had handed Philip Hammond a fairly juicy upgrade in the fiscal forecast. And what that basically means is that the OBR thinks that over the next few years, the government is going to borrow less money than it thought it would uh, a few months ago. So far this financial year, Britain's borrowed about 20 billion or so pounds, and that's about 1% of GDP. But that's a lot less than had been predicted back in March. And across the forecast period as a whole, which runs till about 2023, Britain's public finances are in the region of 60 to 70 billion pounds healthier than previously believed. And what that basically means is that the government, and Mr Hammond in particular, has a little bit more room to play with. And so what he said is he's going to boost spending on various things, and that qualifies as ending austerity. So what has he been spending money on? Well, 
pretty much all of the extra money that he's been given by the OBR has gone on a big boost for the National Health Service. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, a few weeks ago, promised this big 20 billion slug of extra money to spend on, on health care. And Mr Hammond has delivered on that promise. And so spending on the NHS will be quite significantly higher than was expected a few months ago. He's also promised a few, I guess you could call them, boondoggles, both for MPs whose support he may be needing to rely on as the Brexit deal hopefully comes to Parliament, and a few other things as well. The personal allowance for income tax, that's the sort of tax-free amount that you can earn before you start to pay income tax, has been increased again, which is a manifesto commitment by the Conservatives, and also the level of income at which you start to pay the higher rate of income tax, so that's 40%, has also gone up as well. So What Mr. Hammond has basically said, and this was really the tone of his speech, was we're going to cut your taxes. We are going to also increase spending on public services, hence ending austerity. And we're going to meet all of our self-imposed fiscal targets. And that really most importantly means getting down Britain's public debt as a share of GDP. The UK has been leading attempts to deliver international corporate tax reform for the digital age. A new global agreement is the best long-term solution, but progress is painfully slow. We cannot simply talk forever. So we will now introduce... (laughs) We will now introduce a UK digital services tax. As well as an improved fiscal forecast from the OBR, the Chancellor also announced a few innovative tax-raising ideas. And the biggest one of those was a so-called digital services tax, which is really aimed at companies like Facebook and Google, which obviously have operations in the UK. And the idea there is to put a levy on the revenues of those tech giants rather than those profits. And the idea there is to, as government ministers would put it, to get those digital companies to pay their fair share. Now, the amount of tax raised by this proposed levy is not particularly high. It's around £200 million, which really is bare change in terms of fiscal policy. Nonetheless, it's generating a lot of international interest. Mr Deputy Speaker, the switch to universal credit is a long overdue and necessary reform. This is not just a welfare measure, it is a major structural reform to our economy that will help to drive growth and employment in the years ahead. So on top of the extra money for the National Health Service, the Chancellor put some extra money towards universal credit, which is a very large welfare reform, which again has been attracting a lot of international interest because it's really the closest that any country has got towards a kind of really proper simplification of their welfare system. At the moment, it's highly regressive in its design, but Mr Hammond put some extra money towards that and so now the system is somewhat less regressive. But to the wider question of whether austerity is over, now there's many different ways in which you can define austerity. Let's take a few examples and look at how departmental spending is changing over time. So what really happened after the financial crisis was that the amount of money that government budgets were allowed to spend was falling. And it was falling as a share of GDP, it was falling in per person terms, and it was falling in inflation adjusted terms. Now, what's going to happen from really 2018 onwards is that that trend is going to stop. So in real terms, we're now at a situation where departments are being allowed to actually spend 
more money and that's both in real terms and in per person terms and then as a share of gdp it's kind of started to sort of flatline so on that basis it's not entirely ridiculous for mr hammond to claim that austerity is over austerity is coming to an end but discipline will remain and finally if you listen to money talks regularly you will know that our very own captain sensible henry kerr suggested a few weeks ago that a good sensible but boring fiscal suggestion might be to deal with potholes well it seems that the chancellor agrees with him Every member of parliament will testify that potholes are high on the public's list of concerns. So as autumn takes hold, I am making an additional £420 million available immediately, immediately to local highway authorities to tackle potholes, bridge repairs and other minor works in this financial year. For now, everything looks pretty good in fiscal terms. The government has more money than it was expecting, and it's spending more money on various goodies, including the National Health Service. But the question is really how long this uneasy calm is going to last. We are only a few months away from Britain leaving the European Union. If there is a deal, things will probably continue on much as they are, for the short term at least. But if there's not and Mr Hammond was quite aware of this in his speech, they're going to have to rip up their plans and start again. Callum, thank you. Next, last week we discussed the jitters in the stock market over economic growth in China. And over the past week, tech firms have seen quite vertiginous falls in their share prices. Patrick Fowles is our Schumpeter columnist. Patrick, what's going on? Well, over the last few weeks, as you point out, it's been a quite tricky time for financial markets. So the S&P 500, the main index for American shares, is now down about 10% from its high. But within that, there is a particularly sort of queasy set of movements happening among some of these huge tech companies that are the biggest companies in the world, really. And the one that really struck was Amazon, which on Friday dropped by about 10% after investors felt that some of the data it gave on on how fast its sales are growing in America pointed to some kind of slowdown. And I think that fed into a bigger paranoia among investors that this huge tech boom that's been going on for three or four years is now running out of steam. Those valuations were based on really quite extraordinary expectations for growth in earnings year after year after year. I mean, were they just always unrealistic or has something really changed? You have isolated exactly the interesting point because Amazon, for example, is still growing really quite quickly. I mean, by any normal standard, it's putting in an amazing performance. But what's happened over the last couple of years is expectations for how much profits these companies will make in 2021 and beyond have soared. I mean, in, in Amazon, case, I think they probably doubled. And what that means is even slight evidence of a slowdown or that these companies' trajectories are not quite as exciting as investors hope leads to quite big share price movements. So expectations have been baked up to such a high level that it's quite easy to disappoint. And I should add that exactly the same process has been happening in China, which has its own tech giants over the last several months too. And between the US and China, of course, there's the whole issue of trade war. I don't know if that's part of this background that has led to re-evaluation of in particular tech firms, or is it just another reason for worry? 
I think the trade part of it could affect some companies. I mean, Apple is the most obvious one where it relies on this very complex system of supply chains around the world. But weirdly, the weakness has probably been mostly in Tencent, which is a, a big Chinese company that does messaging and games, where it's had a terrible time over the last few months. And again, Facebook, where some of the problems are more related to the political and social stink that it's created with all of its fake news and sort of data problems. So I, I would say trade is lingering as a possible threat to some of the tech firms, but isn't the main story. Does it matter if you're not someone who holds shares in a tech firm? Good question. First of all, almost all of us do hold shares in tech firms because they've become so big that there are substantial allocation in every single pension fund for everyone in the Western world. So it does matter to everyone's bottom line a, a little bit. But the interesting thing about the tech firms is as they've got bigger, their economic footprint has become surprisingly large. So the investments that they make now absolutely dwarf the kind of investments you would see from oil companies or big engineering companies. And one of the interesting questions is if there is a slowdown, if share prices begin to frighten investors, if managements become a bit more worried, you could see them dial down the investment and that could cause economic weakness. So the surprising and interesting question about the tech boom this time round compared to the 2000 bubble is the economic footprint. The sheer size of these companies is far bigger than it was back then. Patrick, thank you. And if you want to read Patrick's Jump at Her Column and more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Finally, the iconic roar of a Harley Davidson is becoming a rarer sound. Sales of the famous motorbike declined by 13% in the last quarter. Our Midwest correspondent, Vendelin von Bredo, donned her leathers and went to Milwaukee to the Harley-Davidson Museum. What was it like, Vendelin? Oh, it's amazing. It's, um, it's a temple to the wonders of industrial design. You see displays illustrating the entire history of 115-year history of Harley-Davidson with, of course, the most amazing motorbikes, petrol tanks, accessories, documents relating Harley's history. And admittedly, I'm not much of a motorbike fan, but I found it absolutely fascinating. But sales are declining, aren't they? Sales have now declined for 16 consecutive quarters. And the last quarter was no exception. Sales actually plunged by 13%. So investors are rather worried about the state of Harley. Is that to do with the cohort that it's associated with? I mean, Hell's Angels types aren't exactly young. Is the problem age? Yes. Sort of the main Harley fan group consists of grizzled white middle-aged men. And uh, when I went to see the Harley Museum, I was surrounded by lots of very friendly um, white middle-aged men, uh, a few women and one child. So they need to appeal more to a younger group, to millennials and to women and minorities. And they're trying to do that. But so far, I think it's a bit of an uphill battle at the moment. I mean, that's always the problem, isn't it, with an established brand and such a strong brand as well, that it has very strong associations with a particular style and a particular group. Absolutely. And Harley is a bit of a special case in the sense that it, it was already almost bankrupt once in the um, 1980s. I mean, not, not that it's close to bankruptcy at the moment, but it, it had a hard time in the 1980s. 
and it was really revived by baby boomers discovering Harleys and they are aging now so they the demographic tide is turning against the company and now the big challenge is to to rejuvenate and to to be appealing for, for, for the younger generation. I presume that's a challenge for many companies because, of course, that cohort is huge. That was the point about the baby boomers. So lots of people will have hitched their wagon exactly to that group and now they're ageing. Yes, but not many companies are, are attractive mainly to men. And in, in Harley's case, I think um, I talked to one dealer who told me that out of their client base, about 17% are women. So it's really quite a small group. And I, I don't think many companies are just so focused on, on male customers. So that's, uh, that, that, that's sort of a limiting factor in Harley's case. They've got very tied up, haven't they, in Donald Trump's trade war. I seem to remember that uh, he, they, they really got a lot of stick from him about having a factory abroad. Yes, unwittingly. And, and they certainly didn't intend to, to be a subject of the trade war. What happened is that after President Trump announced the tariffs on um, steel and aluminum, Harley announced, and that was probably not the best timing, that it was moving some of the production for the bikes that's selling in Europe abroad. They are not moving production to Europe, but, but abroad. And until then, President Trump had been a huge fan of Harley, was praising the company, and it really stoked his ire, and he attacked the company by name on Twitter, which, uh, which then didn't go down very well with, with the Harley enthusiasts, because most of them voted for, for, for President Trump. Thanks, Vendelin. On your bike. I'm speeding away. Thank you, Helen. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.